Halloween is coming up, so oh, it's just right. like the, the scramble for finding the perfect costume. And, and I'm not even going to be here because I have work that night. Oh, yeah. So just, you know, making sure the kids are squared away. And Did they decide on their costumes? Yeah. Yeah. Is it is it a surprise? It's a secret. Oh, no, it's not a secret. I want to know what they're going to be. <laughs> you want to know? Yeah. Okay, so my oldest daughter is going to be a dragon, but derived from an original character that she created. And my younger daughter was going to be a fox, but then she got that costume and she didn't like it. So now she's like a zombie. I don't even know how to describe it. A zombie Grim Reaper <laughs> type character. So we've, we've run the gamut. <laughs> these, these both sound very on brand. <laughs> For both girls. Very funny. I love that Talia created a character. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. She would never go with something out of the box. No. That's just not her. No. No, that's not who she is. That's right. Mm-mm. That's good. <laughs> yes. And it's good because she takes the work upon herself to do it. She doesn't expect us to, like, do Mom it for to her. create your dragon costume for you. <laughs> no, that is not my area of expertise. <laughs> Welcome to the Viola-Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists finding inspiration through authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. Conductors, I think, they are like obsessed with being able to share their vision of a piece And if nobody has a vision of the piece, then that's like a win for them, I think, because then they don't have to like convince anybody against a prior interpretation. It feels that way, which is kind of cool. I can't remember the last time that the main piece on a program was something I had never learned. Mm. So that's fun, but it's really hard. (laughs) It's just like non-intuitive, all kinds of all over the place patterns. So everyone's learning it from scratch and then just hoping for the best. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if it's the first time for you, it's probably the first time for a lot of people in the audience. So, right. I'm sure it'll feel cathartic by concert time. It's just going to be a lot of work over the next three days. (laughs) Yeah. That's rewarding. Totally. I used to tell myself when I was like in middle school learning etudes, That no matter how hard the etude was, on the other side of it, I was going to be a better musician. And that's what got me through a lot of etudes that just completely sucked, is just me being like, okay, just do this, and then you're going to be better at the end when it's over. You would tell yourself that in middle school? That's so wise. (laughs) Yeah, I would. I could do that now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I had that kind of wisdom. That's very impressive. Although, that's a good point. I was really really bad about practicing etudes, probably because I couldn't see my future self thanking my current self for doing it. That's a skill, I think. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's so true. And honestly, I'm looking forward to the grind. I actually love that we're going to learn something brand new as a collective. And this conductor is, I really, really love playing for her. So that's inspiring. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be great. It's good to sink your teeth into hard things, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's reassuring, too, to know that you have camaraderie with your fellow section mates and people in the orchestra who have never played it before either. I'm having that same experience. We're in a very similar situations right now yeah. where I'm playing this ungodly hard opera, Strauss opera. Yeah. And 
it just feels like I'm going into battle each time I go into rehearsals. Yep. But it's like everybody's in the same boat. Even talking in the elevator, going up to rehearse, talking to a friend. And I said, so you ready for this? And she's like, no, are you? <laughs> and we're in a like, full elevator of musicians. And they're like, oh, my gosh, thank goodness everybody feels the same way. <laughs> yep, totally. That was the reaction coming out of sectionals today was, yeah, no one's getting all the notes. It's just not happening. <laughs> well, between you all, you'll collectively get maybe all the notes. It is. It was a scary thing to walk in and be like, oh, we're doing sectionals now. We're all professionals, but sectionals is another story. That's like old trauma. I know. Did you ever have those conductors that would go stand by stand? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I have like severe trauma from that. Same. Experience. She did not do that to us, thank God. I was thinking of this as I was practicing today. I was like, is there ever a time in your life? And I can, I think I can say that there is definitely never going to be a time in my life where I don't feel like a hack. <laughs> and I mean that in the nicest sense of the word. There's always something that's going to throw you for a loop. Yeah. And there's comfort in the fact that that's an opportunity to grow, right? Yes, let's hope. Silver lining it here today. Yeah. <laughs> So this past Monday, I was coaching. Oh, this was such a funny interaction. And I'm telling this particular group, they get to go out and play a gig next week. We got subcontracted by another contractor in the area who wanted student musicians mm -hmm. to come and play a gig, like cocktail hour type thing that we would normally do, because it's for a learning association. Anyway, so I'm preparing them for this gig. And one of the things I have to do as their teacher is say, hey, you're going to miss a rehearsal because this is on a Monday night. So you have to be extra working hard on your piece for your concert that's coming up in November. And they're all like, wait, we have a concert in November. I'm like, yes, you have a concert in November. You know, what would be cool is if you read your emails. <laughs> anyway, they don't read emails. No, 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 teenagers don't read emails. But the gig conversation was really funny, too, because I basically had to give them a tutorial on here's a bunch of books we're giving you sit down and read from them, <laughs> figure out how to do it in real time. You don't normally rehearse for these kinds of things. And the other student spoke up and she goes, one time I did this job and it was for this really fancy event and everybody was really dressed up and they had all this tiny food and they were passing out tiny food. And the way they were talking about it, I just, it made my heart so happy because I was like, what a way to refresh our minds about the cool things we get to do. Because at some point playing for a cocktail hour gig like loses its luster, right? It's just <laughs> real quick going and playing for a gig but they're so excited they're like hoping to be offered tiny food oh that's cute <laughs> gonna get together and practice ahead of time yeah <laughs> i remember those days yeah it's refreshing but that's an interesting thing i i feel like didn't we talk about i think last year when we did our sorry i'm kind of pivoting here into topical conversation for our mm -hmm. episode when we did our episode last year with Doug Rosenthal, if you haven't had a chance to listen, we'd call this like unionism 101. So back in 101, I think we proposed the concept of what if the musicians in the collegiate level were organizing. And I just learned today that there was a movement among graduate students at a university. Oh, who pulled together, they organized, and they worked to get a contract because they were basically being used as free labor. And so getting them at the collegiate level is, is a thing that's actually 
happening right now, which is kind of cool. That is very cool. Yeah, kind of a neat way to envision something a little bit different, which as far as this conversation goes, I really feel like that's the direction we took in talking to Marge and Ellen, don't you think? Yeah, it was a new way to think of unionism for me. And I don't know if you had this experience, but I've often had the experience of being a freelancer. And I mentioned this as we chat that the union wasn't really for me, but I had to be a member in order to play certain jobs at a certain level. And it was really nice to hear them frame it in a way that was more appealing for freelancers to think of it and to value being involved in something like a union. Mm-hmm. March and Ellen are both career freelancers. Yeah. And it's so key. It's so key because they are coming from that background and that perspective of what it's like to carve out a career in that way. And that's in no way undermining the value of the voices of the audition track contracted musician. Mm-hmm. But the work and the challenges are just so different in the freelance world. And they saw a real disconnect between what their local was able to do for their community and how they felt they could make some change. And so they had to do a campaign. And it's the fair part of the democratic process. Mm-hmm. But it's not always, it doesn't always feel like that's something you can do. You don't feel like you can necessarily voice your own ideas and perspectives and that creates change. For them, it wasn't necessarily even about winning. It was about saying, even if we didn't win, it puts your administration on notice almost to be like, all right, we see you and we want to be represented. I think that's a really important thing to share and probably scary to think about for a lot of people, you know? Mm, Yes, I kind of feel like unionism is entry level politics for musicians can feel overwhelming, like you are a very small part of it, and that it's really hard to affect change. The story is an instance, an example of people just like you and me and other freelancers out there who see a problem, and actually do something about it. Exactly. Yeah. And organize people and create a movement to affect change, which is really inspirational it kind of gives you hope that yes, the little people there is there is such a thing as grassroots organizing. And you can do that with like minded people. And I think that one of the things that really stuck out to me was this idea of relationship. And that by creating the relationships that they have over the years, the network they have, that's where people felt comfortable to support them, because they knew that they would feel represented. I love this idea that And I think there's actually a really large labor movement going on right now. And it's a shift in the way that we've done things before. It's not the same as a labor movement that it was 100 years ago, when the big barons of this country had all of the money, dangerous working conditions, people's lives being at risk. That created an us versus them mentality with management and musicians. And that sort of muscle kind of mentality is not so much the way of the future. And I think we're starting to see that. And I think Marge and Ellen are excellent examples of how it can work without that frame of reference for what unionism is. Unionism being more about all of us and it's our union Mm -hmm. and every voice counts. I think there's a lot of promise for what freelance work in the musician's field could look like going forward if that's the shift in perspective. Yeah. 
I love that. I think people are all looking for a little bit less antagonism these days. Right? And yes, a kinder, gentler relationship with management. Yeah. Theoretically, if unionism is working at its peak, then it's something that everyone feels empowered to do. And we're not forgetting about freelancers who don't have, quote, union work, because everyone who's in the union should feel like they're a part of that. So there's a lot to consider in terms of shifting the mentality. But I think these two ladies are doing a great job yes. of moving the needle in that way. Yeah, it's really inspirational. Yeah. We feel like you guys are really going to love this conversation and maybe it'll change the way that you look at unions and what their value is in your little corner of making a career out of music. Mm. So enjoy this conversation with Marge and Alan. Being freelance musicians means gigging in lots of different places with very unpredictable lighting situations. Oh my gosh, yes. How many times have you shown up to a church gig and wondered if you'll actually be able to see the music by showtime? Many times. Or it's a cocktail hour in a restaurant with ambient mood lighting at best. (laughs) We've all been there and have used those alien looking bendy lights that only light up the top of the page so that by the bottom of the music, you're sometimes just guessing or maybe we'll call it being creative. We didn't know it at the time, but the Aria lights could have saved us lots of eye strain and unplanned improvisation. Yes, and with a rechargeable battery that lasts eight hours, you'll never have to carry backup double A's in your case. You'll just charge it up at home and take the Ari Light to your gig. The battery will even hold a charge for years between uses, not that you would go that long. Thank you so much to Aria Lights for their support this season. Please check them out at ariolights.com. Located in a historic mansion in Tacoma Park, Maryland, you might get the impression that the team at Potter Violins are as formal as the breathtaking building that they work in. But when you go inside, instead you'll find the most relatable, skilled, and friendly staff. Yes, the people at Potter's are what really make it a special place. I love visiting because I know that whoever I work with is not going to make me feel like I'm crazy or just being picky. They're kind of like your favorite bartender. They're great listeners who give you what you need without judgment. (laughs) Yes, their technicians are not only super talented, creative, and resourceful, they take the time to collaborate with you so that the process of getting your instrument at its best really feels like a partnership. So if you're in the area, definitely stop by and introduce yourself to Chris, Rob, Kimberly, Derek, Jim, Melissa, and the whole team or visit potterviolins.com to find what you need online. It's so fitting then that their shop is in this beautiful old house because the staff at Potter's really makes it feel like home. Season three is sponsored by the Arcrest. You know, Liz and I are always being asked about our Arcrests, and we're happy to share how much we love them. The freedom of movement has been life-changing for me. Me too. And I love how using the Arcrest allows my instrument to vibrate fully. And depending on how my body's feeling, I can also change the placement of the bass. Although Aaron and Tigran started the company in their home workshop, they've come a long way, continuing to innovate by experimenting with harder and softer woods and even new materials like fiberglass. There are bases for violin, viola, and even for small fractional instruments. And there are foam pads of different thicknesses, so you can find one that fits your body or instrument perfectly. And the guys over at Arcrest are sharing a special discount code for our listeners. Use the code VIOLACENTRIC for 10% off anything on their site. Yes, check out their offerings at thearcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T.com. And don't forget to use the code VIOLACENTRIC. 
We are so excited to be joined today by the president and vice president of the American Federation of Musicians, Local 77, based in Philadelphia, PA. President Ellen Trainer is a native of Delaware County, PA, and she grew up in a musical family. And I love the way you put this. Although Ellen started her musical studies on violin, she made a permanent transition to viola her senior year in high school. (laughs) It's great. Ellen freelances all over the Philly area. She is the principal viola in the Academy of Vocal Arts Orchestra and also performs with groups including the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia, Opera Philadelphia, the Philly Pops, and Orchestra 2001. Ellen is also an active real estate investor and business owner. Marjorie Goldberg is the vice president and delegate to the International Convention of the AFM. Marge is also an incredibly active freelance violist and music educator in the Philly area where she was raised. She's a violist with the Harrisburg Symphony and the Philly Pops and also performs with and arranges music for Ani Kanor, a chamber ensemble at Congregation Rodef Shalom in Philadelphia. I think maybe, though, one of the more important things I should share with our listeners is that March was one of my first employers growing up. Of course, everybody knows this now. I grew up in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and the Harrisburg Symphony was my orchestra. I studied with the, one of the members of the viola section there, Alice. And at some point, Alice started farming me out to all of her colleagues who had small children to babysit. <laughs> So I would go sometimes to the hotel and watch the kids or I'd be in the green room 16 years old and our conductor Stuart would come back and say hi. And so that was my first experience getting to know Marge through her little ones at the time who are now all grown up. It's kind of a funny little backstory to how we know each other. It's even funnier that we play jobs together now. I know. <laughs> it's like full circle. Right. Anyway, it's really great to have you both here. And the story you have to share about your experience in coming to be in these positions with your local is a really compelling one. So we wanted to just give you guys the opportunity to share in your own words what you were experiencing before you decided to run, what wasn't working, and what gave you the motivation to run to make some changes. So me personally, I've been doing orchestra committee work, which for people that don't know is like union stewards, but for orchestras. I was the chairperson of the one in Harrisburg for like 15 years. I'm the ROPA delegate now. I've always been involved. And when the Philly Pops, I've been playing in there for years. At one point, we decided as musicians, we need a real orchestra committee. And I ended up being on that sort of ad hoc committee. Ellen, similarly, she was on and off orchestra committees throughout her freelancing. Five years ago, we ended up on a committee together for Philly Pops. And we were just not happy with how we were being represented. Even with the groups we don't play in, we felt like there's better representation. And I do want to say that, as you guys know, I'm a member of your local as well. There's no perfect local office. But that seemed like something that was attainable. Why can't we be like that? Mm. And I was also friendly with people on the board in Boston. We sort of had role models in other cities. I think we just got fed up. And it was one of those things, you know, when you're 30, it's really hard. When you're 40, it gets easier. When you, Once you hit 50, you're like, you know what? Enough. <laughs> got to do something. Mm-hmm. I think we felt it at the same time. We were friends anyway, so it's not like we were shy about expressing our dissatisfaction. 
And we sort of just realized we needed to get a group of people together that felt similarly. Yeah, and I, as Marge said, I was on the orchestra committee for Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia and for Opera Philadelphia and with the Philly Pops. And in the negotiations, we would do these surveys and we would get all of our members involved in what they wanted to see changed in the contract. And we would present them to the union and the union would say, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get that. You're not going to get that. And I said, why not? Why aren't we even okay presenting it? So it was already a stumbling block with our own union before we even got to management. And there was just a lot of complaining at the water cooler on the job site. People were very dissatisfied. And the only people of power were the management and the union, meaning the officers. There was a huge disconnect between the worker and everyone else who was in charge, it seemed like, and we were not the ones in charge and we were the product. Mm -hmm. I was one of those workers that complained and complained and complained and complained. Finally, one day, one of the workers on the job site said, you're so unhappy, why don't you run? Uh And a light bulb kind of went off in my head and I said, you know what? Maybe I will. And we started talking. March opened my eyes because I was only a member of Local 77 in Philadelphia and March was a member in DC and she was a member in Harrisburg. And she said, this is not how it works in other unions. And I was shocked and surprised and really? Well, how does it work? Because <laughs> I only knew this one way, which was battling every entity outside of the worker. It was really through my conversations with Marge And March saying, you know, there are others that are unhappy. There are others that want to see a change. And so we said, let's get that group of people together and see if we want to take a step and we want to take a a leap of faith in maybe facilitating change. And so that's kind of how it initiated. And that's how we got started. We didn't realize we were facilitating a campaign, which is like an organizing tool like we do with our orchestra committees, but we were doing it out of necessity or desperation on all the different levels. Once we knew we wanted to run, we were like, well, we need to represent the membership, Mm. not just the gigs that she plays or the gigs I play, but everybody. And about those non-union jobs, as we all know, we see those notices not to do them. And then we hear people whining after the fact when they don't get paid or they don't get paid fairly or they don't get fed or they stand in a parking lot in the rain. Everybody's had that experience. That's the common sort of, have you ever done a a bad gig? Of course, we've all done bad gigs. But guess what? We have the power to make them good gigs. Mm -hmm. We sort of all fell into this the way you fell into podcasting (laughs) out of a necessity for education and change. Yes. Yeah. As a freelancer, you often feel like powerless and especially you're playing these gigs and these contractors have the power over whether you get hired or not. Did you ever have any kind of second thoughts about taking on this more visible role in the union and what that meant for your future as freelancers? It was a little stressful on my part because we were running against some other freelancers, not the officers, but the board. Mm. So that was a little stressful. And I felt I'm like a mommy type. I felt a little bit bad, but I also am an educator and I don't want my students working in a cesspool. Mm. So it's sort of the mommy thing was like, 
we have to fix this. Mm-hmm. And also, again, once you turn 50, you have zero Fs to give. Fs to give, yeah. You're just done. <laughs> so I was at that point. I really don't care if you don't, if you don't want to hire me because you don't believe in my ideology, I get it. If you think I'm not the right violist for your group, that's fine. But I do believe that if you want to make something better, just like you did with your podcast, and like Ellen said, you got to stop complaining and you just have to do something. I think I probably have lost gigs more because I've been outspoken as a younger person. And I can tell you, I've experienced gender bias when I was younger. I don't think so now. So I'm not afraid of that at this point. If I was 30, I would totally have been afraid. Mm, Yeah. If you want my opinion on it, (laughs) I, I would say our generation, we're like the scared generation. As you went through my bio, I'm a business owner and a real estate person, so I can give less Fs to the fact that you're not going to hire me. And, you know, that's kind of the Philly way anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, you both sound very Philly right now. (laughs) You know what? We're violists, so we've heard every freaking joke you could possibly say. And March and I, we like to look at each other and say, well, who's getting last laps now? (laughs) Everyone's coming to us for representation and everyone's coming to us to facilitate change. And I certainly was under the misunderstanding that the leadership will solve all my problems as long as I am the squeakiest of squeaky wheels. Where now I understand that the power is all of us. The power is not. Ellen Trainer has, you know, a big muscle. I mean, I'm impressed by it, but <laughs> you know, my muscling the management of Philadelphia Orchestra is not going to have them cowering in the corner. What's going to facilitate the change that we want to see is that when I speak, I can speak with authority because I know that what I'm speaking is the truth. And every one of those people that are on that job site is going to back me up with what I have to say. The power is with the people. And so we cannot be a scared society. We're seeing it right now. The movement for unions is right now. Politically, people are not happy, but we have to be very careful in how we vote in the future because unionism is on the ballot in November. If we want to still stay in our position of power being unified and being united, we have to make sure that we have the rights that we currently have to be able to stand together as a union and together as a people so that it's not the corporations and it's not the managements, it's not those above us that are going to dictate the few crumbs that they choose to dole out to us. If you're worried about being hired in the future for any actions that you take, you should be afraid of not taking action because you'll have less rights and less power if you don't act now. And I want to piggyback off what she's saying. This goes to our pre-show conversation about the pandemic and how creativity came out of the pandemic in a way. I think it actually helped unionism because people's health and safety were at risk. Mm -hmm. As Stephanie was saying, you know, you're a player, you want to seem, I'm going to be a good musician. I'm going to come to your job and do a good job and behave. And that is what a contractor wants. And if I was a contractor, I would want that. But when your health and safety is at risk, 
I've never seen more people stand up united than around this issue. Yes, we want to play, but we want to do it safely. Or no, we're not ready to play yet. Show us a way to do it in a safe manner. The pandemic was devastating for our industry and especially all of us as freelancers. We all lost work, but none of us died. Mm. Like that's powerful, but it also shows that we all work together. There was one issue that most of us, I'd say 98% of us could agree on. And that was, we want to go to work and we want to be safe and we want to be alive. If you have to find a pandemic silver lining for the freelance community and other freelance workers, it sort of helped the union movement as a movement, not the top down, like there's a union boss in an office over here and you guys are all on the factory floor. No, it's we're all in this together. We want to do this thing. That's our job that we went to school for, but let's figure out how to be safe. Yeah. So, you know, one little silver lining. of <laughs> No, that's huge. That's a really great illustration of what the union membership is actually like what our powers are when we work together for something like that. And you were right. Our power. Yes. Yes. And it can be really hard to conceptualize that when it's something like hourly rate or sometimes I look at those wage charts and I'm just like, my eyes glaze over and I cannot even figure out what I should be paid. But something like this, okay, am I going to have to wear a mask? What are the rules for breaks? How close are people going to be to each other? Almost like training wheels for how to speak with a collective voice and how union representation can really be meaningful in the workplace for us. Well, and there's industries like the theater industry, for instance. We have some theaters here in town. Before the pandemic, they were filthy. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, we were able to negotiate, aside from your health and safety, guess what? You're going to clean the pit now. <laughs> we're going to let that go away. You're going to keep cleaning that pit. We need to keep this collective power going, even when the pandemic's gone and we're back to happily just playing all our jobs. You can't be complacent. Mm. We're not complacent about our playing. Right. We practice. We're attentive. We can't be complacent about the other issues that go along with our workplace. Yeah, I actually think you're totally right about the idea that the pandemic sort of created a rebirth of energy around unionism. And I think there are a lot of people coming up in our generation who are interested in being involved, who want to look at the ways that we can change the operation of the union in order to make it work a little bit better for the way life is now. I don't know what the demographics are like in Philadelphia, but in the D.C. union anyway, the percentage of freelancers versus those who have full-time employment as musicians is astronomical. I mean, there's so many more people freelancing in this area than there are who have full-time employment. So just feeling like we can be represented. How was it to transition? Well, I think in my case, I also, I'll let Ellen speak for herself. I feel like we won by a good amount. So that's democracy. Yeah. And I have to say that it's a different kind of unionism and a different environment. So I don't fault the other members that used to be on the board. They were doing what they knew. Yes. Your board knows what they know. The Boston board knows what they know. The Harrisburg board knows what they know. But when you want to make change, that's going to be tough. Some people don't want change. But I have to tell you, our colleagues who we do play jobs with who were on the board, they're very supportive mm -hmm. in work actions. Yeah, that's awesome. We did win by a large margin. And when we ran, we decided 
that even if we didn't win, it would put the previous administration on notice that the status quo was not acceptable anymore. And that every three years, they better sit up straight and be held accountable for their complacency or their success. So when we did win, the first day we showed up for work and we said, okay, now what do we do? (laughs) Um, It was pretty eye-opening because there's not really a handbook. Nobody hands you the Bible. It was probably good there wasn't a handbook because that handbook was not working, right? Right, right. We were familiar with our colleagues in the freelance world. I will tell you that about 88% of our membership is freelance. And we wanted to speak to everyone. We actually, in fact, had a meeting scheduled with Philadelphia Orchestra, I think that same day. It was day two. It was oh day my two. God. <laughs> I mean, you know what, uh, out of, what is it, out of the frying pan and into the fire? fire. <laughs> yes. we, it was really scary. Mm. And I think one of the things that was really apparent, I equated it to, you know, going to Hawaii. The big orchestra, which is in our case, Philadelphia Orchestra, is the big island. And all the freelance jobs in the city are all the little islands. But there was no ferry that took you from the big island to the little islands. One of our missions is to make people realize, and if you look at our shirts, it says United in Solidarity. There has to be an understanding that an injustice to one is an injustice to all. And if what happens in the opera is not of concern to the Philadelphia Orchestra, guess what? Philadelphia Orchestra's management is going to take notice of that, and they might try to chip away at that negotiations. We know for a fact that the managements here in Philadelphia all speak to each other. Hmm. And if they can pile on to try to use up the union's resources to wear the musicians down or to wear our time down, they know how to do it and they do it really, really well. So Mm. we have really tried to make it our mission to make sure that if there's something that's a job action that is going to happen in one of the freelance groups, we make sure that we put it on social media. We have the orchestra committee communicate that to the various different orchestras so that if people can come and information leaflet or show their support to their colleagues, reach out to their colleagues, like a Facebook post, like that's realized. And it's not just realized by the bargaining unit, but it's realized by donors and subscribers. And it's certainly noticed by the management. So we have made great strides in that movement because it needs to be a movement. And part of it is educating the general public. Yes. You guys know this from freelancing. People either think you're in the National Symphony if you're in D.C., or it's a hobby. Yes, (laughs) or you're playing wedding eggs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So part of it is educating our own patrons. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately, our managements are are not going to do that for us. Why would they? But we need to educate them. Look, we're piecing our work together. We're in six orchestras and we have 97 students and doing this and that and the other. And trying to stay married. Trying to stay married. Yes. (laughs) And educating everybody, not just our own people, but the patrons. And I will say we're negotiating three contracts right now, all at the same time. 
two of them leafleted their patrons. And it was one of the most gratifying things I've ever done. One was for a group I'm in. One's for a group that I've only subbed in once. But talking to the patrons and understanding what they know and then being able to educate them about the issues. And it's always so surprising. And especially when you see, you know, teachers or the building trades, it's really gratifying to listen to them. What What is happening that's making you come out here? It was really gratifying that the patrons did stop and ask us, tell us what this is about, what is happening? And teaching them that if they cancel something because they did a bad job selling tickets, that doesn't help me pay my mortgage. I don't get paid. So just getting the messages out. And the other thing that's really important is learning to become political, which I'm a very strong politically minded person in my brain. I totally agree with myself about everything. <laughs> but connecting with local politics, because I don't know about your city, but this is a union town. Oh, yeah. They need our support to win their elections. And being in their faces is not something I think either of us ever thought we would have to do. Mm. And I'm telling you, this woman marched into City Hall one day when she found out that for the mayor's inauguration, they hired a non-union band from New York City. And she walked over there and let it be known that that can't ever happen again. <laughs> I assure you, six years ago, you never would have imagined yourself doing that. You would have just been painting yeah. in your house and playing your game. That was somebody else's problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, like getting political is important. And as voters, of course, we all know it's important, especially with what's going on in this country. But as union workers, and we have to support our other union workers, even when we don't understand anything about their industry. If you're asking me to go to this Starbucks because this is one of the six that's unionizing and not these, you got it. That's an easy enough ask. I can do that for you. I can even show up on your picket line and wear my shirt and hang a sign and walk around for 15 minutes. What does that hurt? It hurts nothing. The bigger that the union movement can be and your generation and the next generation and the next one are the ones that will do it, the stronger we'll be. From the Philadelphia Orchestra down to the single engagement worker and everything in between. This is so awesome mm -hmm. because you're highlighting so many facets of how this operation actually works. Ellen, the island metaphor is so good. And it probably exists in just about every major city, right? There are the big organizations that it's this top down sort of idea within the musicians of the union. And to have the support from that big island to carry that over into the little islands, like that's a full body nod moment. I'm just yes. like, oh, <laughs> I can't even nod enough. Absolutely. And I think that as freelancers, especially coming up, not really having any education in what a union is, what a union does, we're just told you need to sign up for it if you want to play these gigs and not really feeling like the union is for us. It makes so much sense the way that you describe it. Oh, it's so cool. If I can comment on what you're saying, Steph, mm -hmm. is that there's definitely the concept, if you don't really understand unionism, the concept is it's a penalty. It's, a, it's an extra taxation. Yes. It's like pay to play type of thing. Yep. And what we are trying to instill in the Philadelphia Orchestra is simple mathematics. There are two trains of thoughts. The first one is... The Philadelphia Orchestra feels, and the big orchestras, the Ixam orchestras feel, well, we pay the majority, and so we should be entitled to everything under the sun. And the freelancers are thinking, well, we make so little, it's just a taxation for us. But what people have to realize is 
Without unions, if you had to stand on your own, you would be begging. But when you look at the collective numbers of the union members in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Orchestra, we're at 100 members. That's impressive. But if the Philadelphia Orchestra has a labor dispute, if you bring 800 additional members to stand together in your contract labor dispute, where is the power? Is the power in 100? Certainly, that's a strong number. But if you look at 900, <laughs> and not just 900, but as Marge said, while we are supporting other unions when we don't have labor disputes, guess who's going to show up when we do? Mm-hmm. All of those other unions of which we've supported in the past, of which we have provided musical entertainment on the steps of those picket lines to say, we're united in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. That's where the power comes from. And that's what moves managements to say, you know what, I think we need to give them more of what they want. We're willing to compromise. Don't upset our opening night. Don't upset our donors and patrons. An organizer once said to me, you know what, when you have abuse in the family, as long as you keep it within those four walls, the abuse continues. The minute you take it outside of those four walls, because you're tired of that abuse, that's when things start to get real. That's when change actually happens. So is being a member of the union for everyone? It should be. You do's are awesome because that's what facilitates change. Hmm. Oh, it's so good. Mm -hmm. When you reference the patrons too, I wanted to just tag that as well, because I've never thought about it from the perspective of being like these audience members that come out and support the organizations that you're playing for, they love what you're doing. And if they were educated on what it is that you have to do to make this living work, the support there would be phenomenal. But it's so great because it's giving a new perspective to why everyone should feel compelled to do that kind of supporting of our efforts here. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what sort of success stories you have had with negotiating contracts for any sort of organizations that are up there in Philly that weren't officially union jobs and then became union jobs. We had... Very early on, actually, the AVA orchestra that you mentioned, which is Academy of Vocal Arts, Ellen was a member. This is a, an opera training institute. They do beautiful productions and they're very loyal to their musicians. So it wasn't a job security thing. But like we like to say, just because that contractor and that conductor like you, what's going to happen when they retire? Right. We've all been on gigs where a new contractor took over and all of a sudden we're not on the gig anymore. Yep. So... Ellen presented it that way to the director of the school at the time, and he was receptive. And we were able to turn that into, it wasn't coming from nothing, but it was from a one-page terms and conditions about wages and the clock ticking to a more comprehensive union contract. And people now have job security. So now if Maestro retires or the contractor retires, Ellen knows that she's not out with the dishwater. 
We had another one that we're sort of proud of, which was a regional theater here. And again, they're very loyal to who they hire, but it's one contractor away from not being your job anymore. We also know that the past negotiations for that theater never involved a musician. And I know we've all played theater, so we know there's zero job protection. And the musicians were scared. The musicians were terrified and would allow the filthy pit with mice mm-hmm. and rats. And so we did get a committee of workers that were willing to serve as like an orchestra committee and they were involved in the negotiation. And we actually were very proud of how it went because they were all involved. They did their own research, just like an orchestra committee would. They got job protection. And I think there's only like four other theaters in the country that have a roster listed. So maybe this is the fifth. But what I want to say about this is when the negotiations got difficult, because they did get difficult, and my personal feeling, I'm speaking for me, is it was a little old school mansplaining, and we were new, and why should anybody listen to us? We talked about leafleting, and one of the proudest things I can say that I feel proud about is I reached out to some people in the Philadelphia Orchestra, and I said, these people have no job protection. We can't ask them to do their own leafleting. We need to be there for them. And I got a bunch of freelancers that volunteered to do it. And I had some Philly Orchestra people ready to leaflet to support these theater musicians who had literally no protection at all. Turned out we canceled the leafleting because we made progress in the negotiation. But that was one of the, the turning points for me, like, this is working. We're making good movement on the negotiation front, but also as Ellen referenced earlier, teaching us that we have to be there for each other. Mm. Because I can honestly tell you when the Philadelphia Orchestra striked, what, 20 years ago, whenever that was, 10 years ago, I wasn't going to go walk a picket line for them. My brain was, you're on salary, you're fine, you have a strike fund. Yes. I'm busy, I got to go teach this one student. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm in a different space and I understand unionism and collective action, not just in a bargaining unit, but together as a big party. And if I can do it, I'm out there. It's almost like you're just making the community stronger, the musician's community stronger. And when people feel like they have support, then they're willing to stick their neck out a little bit further. Yeah, the idea of showing up for each other. Yeah. I think any freelance community, it doesn't matter where you are, can identify with that us versus them feeling of the salaried musician and the freelance musician. Yeah. And to really try to shift the collective mentality to be, no, 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 it doesn't matter. Like all of us are working together for the same purpose. Mm -hmm. Then you wonder what happens to a San Antonio symphony. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If they have the support of their full community, what happens? Yeah. Well, and I think that you always need to be researching. You always need to be trying to find connections within the musicians union. And one of the things March was really good at was identifying members of the Philadelphia Orchestra who are married to a freelancer. Oh, they'll be sympathetic to this. They were freelancers here, or they were freelancers in DC, or they were freelancers in New York. So they are totally on board and understanding. And then Again, from the teaching perspective, I know you wouldn't want your students to be treated that way. Mm -hmm. That is a huge trigger point for a lot of the big orchestra members because they teach at the university level and they're trying to have their students win auditions for symphony jobs. So 
there's one where you could say an injustice to one is an injustice to all, because if you allow that to happen in your contract negotiation, how is that going to affect your student when they're trying to get a job? And man, does that make them want to rise up? Because sometimes people won't stand up for themselves, but they'll stand up for somebody else that they love. Mm -hmm. And so that's a huge thing to consider. People are not that far removed from whatever your issue is. You just have to find that connection, something that'll get them emotionally charged about it and they'll be there. So good. (laughs) good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Your negotiating style. Do you find that you have brought, I'm going to just say, you know, Marge, you brought up mansplainy energies. (laughs) So yeah. Are you bringing more of a female energy to negotiations? Are you approaching them in a different way than what we traditionally associate with union negotiations? The AFM actually has really good services for symphonic musicians. So there is a department called Symphonic Services Division, and it's run by a violinist who's a lawyer, and there are trained negotiators that are trained to do this work, to negotiate contracts. That was never utilized here. And I remember when Ellen and I were on the committee together where we finally went, we got to do something, I specifically asked that instead of using the local legal counsel who I didn't feel was qualified, if we could have a negotiator. And I not only slapped down, I got yelled at. You don't need that. You have me. We've been using these negotiators in Harrisburg for years and years and years. And they treat us differently in that group because we've had professional help, not some free lawyer on the board that's going to give you an hour on Friday at four o'clock. So we've started using those negotiators when we think there's a problem. And Ellen is really adamant about everybody on the committee who is representing their members speak. So Ellen's really good at training the members to speak in a negotiation. So it's not just some boss over here. Mm-hmm. It's not Hoffa. It's all of us, the orchestra. We try to do good cop, bad cop. It doesn't always work just to surprise people once. And usually I'm the mummy and she's the tough carpenter lady. <laughs> Every once in a while I yell and then people get all freaked out because I'm <laughs> very mummy teacher like. I like to believe that I can always talk people into seeing my way and that they'll eventually, you know, cave. Because again, we totally agree with ourselves. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I'm really fortunate in so many ways that I came from the Philadelphia freelance scene, that I am Philadelphia, that I've been in this atmosphere for so long. The people that I'm bargaining with are the worker bees. They know me because I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. To me, it's a lot easier to be passionate about injustices to musicians because I'm in the trenches with them. But I say to them, I can't be the one that does all the talking. You have to speak about this issue because you will get more out of this management if it comes from you. And it's not just the same tone, not the same volume, pitch. Those who don't speak very often, when they do speak, management listens. They're used to me telling them how to do their job. (laughs) I mean, honestly... I say to them, not that I'm going to tell you how to do your job, but I'm going to tell you. And they say, (laughs) we're used to that coming from you, Ellen. But it's the truth. But if one of the other worker bees stands up and says, 
you know, I need to tell you, you're deficient. This is not okay. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't lie. They nod their heads and say, I know you don't lie. Yeah. That speaks volumes when someone who doesn't usually speak finally speaks to the management to say, this is not okay. They get it. And that's what moves them. It's not powerful. us all the yeah. time talking over them. It does make a difference. We make sure that we meet with these orchestra committees, like the groups that I'm not involved in, the Philadelphia Ballet, I'm not part of that bargaining unit. And I say to them, you have to make me understand every aspect of this contract because I can't speak on your behalf if I don't know exactly what the problem is and why we need to change this and how passionate you are about the injustice and why this needs to change. The members are the strength, not Marge and myself. Right. And that's important for all freelancers to know. And one thing I like to say is when you do play in an orchestra, think about who you're electing to the committee. It shouldn't be your friends. It should be the people that seem like leaders. And by leaders, I don't mean section leaders because you do the Boeings. I mean, leaders who are going to create followers. You know, we all have voted for our friends when we vote people on these committees. That's not helping us. But one of the things you said earlier, Liz, I wanted to respond was you said something about us talking to, you know, just talking to people. That's all it is. Organizing is talking to people. And I like to say it's social skills. <laughs> yes. And that's easy for me. I do have good social skills. I'm the lady that plans the parties after the concerts. So are you. Maybe you'll be a union officer someday. Uh, please don't add anything more to her plate right now, please. <laughs> no, I won't. Not yet. For the love of Pete. My business partners are forbidding me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> she has zero Fs left to give. But you know what? A lot of it, even as colleagues, even as union workers, we need to just talk to our colleagues. More important to talk to the ones that aren't your friends. Talk to somebody that you just work with because chances are if the dirty pit is irritating you, it's irritating them. Mm -hmm. Chances are if you feel like the contractor is cheating you of a minute of overtime or trying to not pay because overtime is only a minute, it's going to annoy somebody else too. And you will be stronger if you know your pain is other people's pain. And that's why the teachers union and the nurses union and IATSE, they're so strong. And this is one thing, Stephanie, you alluded to. We don't learn this in school. Mm -hmm. Not only do we not learn it in school, we're taught to be cutthroat. So if she's third chair and I'm fourth and we're in school, I'm immediately irritated. Mm -hmm. Instead, we should be at the workplace going, you know what, that overtime thing, did you notice that? You know, because we're too busy being irritated that she's sitting in front of me. <laughs> we don't care about that stuff. We have to care about the big picture. And you know what? Our managements love that we're irritated by the little things over here, the chatter. It's just chatter. But if we all talk and we realize we're in the same boat, that's where power is. So it's a sad thing that we don't learn in school. And I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. So I sort of feel like why would a college bring a union officer to come in and talk to the musicians? Because what if the teachers aren't union teachers? That'll spark a little disagreement. I work at UArts. Well, actually, you said it in my bio. I literally just retired. Congratulations. So I, you can edit that later. <laughs> I would wear this shirt to class. I'm teaching music education classes because these students know they want a union teaching job, but will go play in a jazz club for $12 and a chicken nugget and let them stream their intellectual property for free. 
So I would just start wearing the shirt. And of course, people would ask about it. And we happened to be unionizing at the same time at UArts. And what was so inspiring is so many students supported the teachers and the staff unionizing because they realized they've been learning. I have had other colleges in this town ask me if I would come talk to their classes. And one of them is a famous school that does not have union teachers. And I was like, good for them for asking. At least they realized their students will be workers, but it's woefully left out of our learning. We learn our excerpts and we learn our scales and we learn to show up on time and to dress appropriately for a gig. But that's about it. Mm -hmm. We don't learn anything about what do you do when you show up on the workplace and somebody's rude or abusive or stealing your time or stealing your intellectual property. Nobody teaches us that. Maybe if you take a business music course, you learn about intellectual property. But I can bet that none of us on this screen, the first time we saw somebody recording our concert, had the balls to get up and say, are they allowed to do that? I would have never done that. Now I do it all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is there an agreement for that camera? We're afraid because we're not taught to not be afraid. Yeah, you don't know. Like you said, you don't know where to go or who to tell. Right. Yeah. Or that it's even wrong sometimes. That's what my personal mission is, is to teach all my students and all our members that we can be so strong together. You will not be strong by yourself. Unless, I mean, you know, if you're Yo-Yo Man, you have a manager, your manager is doing all this stuff for you. But other than that, once you're showing up at a workspace, you guys need everybody. We need to stay together. And this morning, while she was busy doing this, my only outburst was trying to do Jewish mom guilt and shame the people that are doing a lot of work to get their colleagues to do more work. We have to stick together like a big group. Mm. Otherwise, what's the point? We can all go back in our corners and just keep practicing our scales and only fending for ourselves. I love, and this really just brings it home, but your slogan when you guys were running for office was us for you, but that's evolved to be you for you. That's right. And that's just so, I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about here is how can we take the power? The union is us and we should all feel like we have a voice. That's right. Because we do. Yes, you do. Absolutely. Our door is always open to union and non-union. You have problems on the job site. You want to talk about how you feel that there's an injustice being done. Union rights are civil rights. Mm -hmm. And we are here to try to help on the job site. And I think what we all need to realize is the newest member of our orchestra needs guidance. They need support. And you know what? If you show them some support and some interest, they'll be standing with you. But as long as you just show up at the job site, do your job, don't reach out to anyone new, how is that going to grow the movement? Our actions have to be movements. When we play and we perform, we move. We exude positive energy and our audience loves it. We need to create that on the job site with our colleagues. We need to move together with them. And the end result will be that we are a much happier society on our job sites. And that will transmit into our personal lives as well. I love that. Oh, that's, that's so good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think that that sort of mindset translates into so many things about working in this field. And so, you know, you can call it unionism, or you could just call it looking out for each other and getting rid of that, as you described it, Marge, that feeling of 
competition. competition. It's, it's just, Stephanie and I were just talking about this before you, you hopped on, the scarcity mindset and how it plays into this field that we work in and to eradicate that. And I just love this fresh perspective that unionism could be a way to help eradicate that feeling. If we're all in it together, mm-hmm. no matter what job we have or don't have, then we start looking out for one another and the conditions get better for everybody. That feels so good to think about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hopeful. Yeah, hopeful. That's a really good way to put it. Any pieces of advice you might share with, let's say you are a freelancer in your 30s, because that's the scariest place to be. You're right that you know every year we get older, we just start having less Fs to give. (laughs) (laughs) But if I'm 28, and I'm in the hustle, and I don't yet see the union out there in my line of work, because I'm still doing the gigs that haven't quite fed in. I'm on like the tiniest island that'll take a long time for a ferry to get to. Any pieces of advice you'd give for those musicians? Well, first of all, one of the things I learned at this job, which I didn't know, is any job you're doing can be a union job if you want it to be. Mm-hmm. I booked musicians for my mother's wedding a couple months ago, and I did a union contract, and they got paid with dignity and a pension contribution. That's all it takes. It's one piece of paper. Your local office can help you with that. You get called to do a wedding. You want to make a union contract out of it. That bride doesn't care what contract you're using, whether you're using the Liz O'Hara music contract or the local 161-710 contract. Mm -hmm. That is there for you. It's there for everybody. And I can assure you, you're charging more than whatever your wage scale book says, Mm -hmm. because it's a minimum. And I think it's really important when you're a 30-year-old musician, regardless of what's going on, you will be 60 someday. And There will either be zero dollars in your pension fund or there will be a monthly payment to you. So I think looking to the future and seeing what it could be and realizing that the union is there for you no matter what you're doing. It it takes effort and you need to be educated, but your union officers are there to teach you about this stuff. That is my biggest lecture that I spew whenever I get the attention of a new freelancer. And don't be late because people hold grudges about that and they'll remember it forever. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> not musically i mean showing up <laughs> <laughs> well musically too yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless you're playing jazz right <laughs> for me the best advice i can give is for freelancer we have to cobble together so much in order to do what we love and i think you want to put yourself out there be connected to your union Be willing to be a part of things that are bigger than you. Be generous with your time and your energy. And that will absolutely be shown and people will want to be around that energy and around that drive. If you're exuding a positive energy, if you're showing interest, like being a salesperson for yourself as a person, that would be my best advice is to just Put yourself forward in a positive way and show interest in your environment and in your colleagues and you'll be noticed and you'll be rewarded in so many ways. Oh my gosh, this is such a great conversation. (laughs) This was really great. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you both. Thank you guys. Yeah, this has been great. It's so nice meeting you and having really great, important conversations and 
all the best to all those aspiring violists and all of the subscribers. It was great to be together. Thank yeah. you so thank, thank you. you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season sponsors, Arc Rest, Potter Violins, and Aria Lights. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. If you loved today's episode, consider writing us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want the chance to hang with us and have access to behind-the-scenes audio and video recordings, check out our new Patreon. Our episodes are edited by Alex Kuchowski. The Viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.